ki ya ta'arog al afike maim kenafshi ta'arog aleha elohim as the deer pants for streams of water so my soul longs it thirsts it pants for you oh my god this is one of my favorite prayers it's psalm 42 a psalm of the sons of korah this longing it's always like stirred something deep in me um, the way this son of Korah doesn't just cry out to God, but he, like he cries out to his own soul. He speaks to himself in this, Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Why is so disturbed within me? Like, do, you ever, do you ever pray like that? Do you ever talk to your own soul? Put your hope in God. And then he describes this feeling that, well, you know it. It's when you can't keep your head above water. Deep, calls to deep in the roar of your waterfall. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. As soon as you like struggle to get your head above water, as soon as you come up, the next wave hits you, and the next one, and the next one, and you start to gasp and get a mouthful of water. This image, um, I've been brooding over this actually for years, but particularly over the last month. Uh, this word waterfalls here is a curious word in Hebrew. Uh, it could mean waterfalls as in like white water rapids, like the image of someone trying to swim through white water rapids and just being overcome by it. Um, it could. Some scholars suggest I'm convinced that it's probably better translated maelstrom. Do you know this word? Do you know? It's one of those vast, powerful whirlpools. Like you get caught in it and it sucks you under, it takes you down. Uh, in the ancient Near East, um, this image was the image of chaos itself. So in the ancient Near East, there's all this language of uh, Yom, the, the god of the sea, the god of chaos, uh, sea being a place of chaos and chaos overcoming order. And, and a, a, then a maelstrom is just the image of of getting consumed, of something sucking your soul down to Sheol itself. Uh, off the coast of Scotland, this right here is a famous maelstrom called the Corryvecan Maelstrom. Um, it supposedly at times gets up to 50 meters wide, like half of a football field. It's famous for just being giant and powerful. It's a sailor-devouring, ship-destroying maelstrom in the middle of the water there. Something about the Straits of Corryvecan between the two, um, between the islands there, as the tide rolls in and the, the geography underneath the water, the waterbed changes. Something about it creates this constant whirlpool, and it's, like I said, famous. Um, they say you can hear the roar of it 10 miles away. It's said to have swallowed in storms, historically, whole ships gone. So the sons of Korah, they, uh, they say, that's what I'm feeling. Like I'm caught in a maelstrom, like the, the roar is drowning out my screams and the waves are breaking over my head. And no matter how hard I struggle, I struggle and I struggle and I struggle, but I can't break free from it. That's the image. So I've been brooding over this, like I said, for the past month. I went to a, um, a conference back in October, and a, uh, a speaker there 
said referred to a limbic maelstrom. I'm actually not sure that he did refer to it. He referred to limbic, and he referred to maelstrom both, those words. But in my notes, those two words got married. <laughs> and I, I wrote that down because immediately that image struck me. You guys know what limbic is? It's um, the limbic system? <laughs> that inner part of the brain where like your emotions come out of? Um, it's that primal, emotional part of your brain, the fight-or-flight systems, all of that stuff is in there. The part that takes over... When you're under extreme stress, anxiety, anger, trauma, fear, uh, the limbic system is uh, super helpful. Thank God for it. It's, it's essential even. So uh, if you're being hunted by a pack of hyenas, if uh, a car is, is on top of your baby, if your kitten is stuck in a burning building, thank God for the limbic system, right? All right that's not when you want to sit down and like have a big lengthy discussion or write a paper on it. That's when you need to react violently. You, you don't need to think about it. You need to be hyper vigilant. So if you're being hunted, if you have to lift a car off of your child, if you need to run into a burning building to save a kitten, it is good. But um, what happens when you're like a shoe salesman or a school teacher or a software engineer or a high school student? And you are stuck in that limbic state. Like the limbic system is caught, stuck in the on position when you're so stressed, so gripped by anxiety, so constantly outraged or triggered that you live most of your life in a hypervigilant state as though you're being hunted by hyenas. <laughs> it's not so good. So uh, when your spouse... You walk into the bathroom and you see that your spouse has left their dirty underwear right next to the shower just where they dropped it. And when you see that, something in you, because you, 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 your, your limbic system stuck, you don't think about it. You react to it and you see that and immediately you know, this is not an accident. This is an act of war. Right? Your kids don't listen to you. And it's not just that they weren't listening to you. They're mutinous. There's little traitors who are trying to take over. Or if someone dares, dares to express an opposing political opinion, they're clearly an enemy trying to destroy you. They must die. And then, then you turn on the news, <laughs> flip through social media, and everything and that echoes exactly what you're feeling inside of you. And every disagreement turns into this life-threatening encounter, like every danger, um, every shadow harbors some terrible danger. Everyone in the world is out to get you. This world is suddenly a very fearful, frightening, terrible place, and stress, anxiety, fear, outrage, hypervigilance becomes a way of life. Limbic maelstrom. The normal American life has become a limbic maelstrom. Like, if you just act normal, like, I'm not talking anything crazy here. If you just, like, get up and use your iPhone like a normal person and commute and go to a normal job and live in a normal neighborhood and walk your dog like a normal person and just do everything normal. If you, if, if you go on a normal vacation and your kids are in normal activities, uh, your limbic system will get stuck in the on position. It, it will. We will be caught in a state of chronic stress Anxiety, outrage, fear, hypervigilance that feels impossible to break out of. And your screams will be drowned out in the roar of the busy, 
busy world we live in, and you'll increasingly feel like you can't keep your head above water until you can't. Until you can't. Limbic Maelstrom. Something about this image just feels jarringly accurate about my experience as a pastor. What I see, what I meet, what I hear day in and day out. Now, I'm not going to resort to uh, statistics, but you know, you know, um, anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, self-medicating, stress-related illnesses, all of this is skyrocketing and it predates COVID. It's been happening for some time now. Our world is drowning in chronic anxiety, fear, outrage, stress, and busyness. We are drowning in it. Sometimes I feel like I'm drowning in it. So I usually make it a practice uh, that when I preach, I, I try at least, I try to preach about us, not about those people, but us. Like I realize we're all kind of in this together. We're all just trying to figure this out together. Um, and so that's what I usually do. But this Sunday, as I was preparing, I'm pretty sure that God wants me to preach this one to myself. You can listen in if you want. So our text for today is Ephesians chapter 3. I would encourage you to turn along. We're going to take the whole chapter. And Ephesians, uh, the first two chapters of Ephesians leading up to this, the Apostle Paul lays out this like stunningly beautiful picture of Christianity. Uh, in it, you find like no commands. This first two chapters, there's nothing to do. Paul isn't telling you what to do or how to live. For two chapters, he, he describes in this lavish detail who God is who we are in Christ, what Christ has done for us. He speaks blessings over us. He gives us a eulogy. He speaks this truth over us. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are blessed. You're chosen. You're predestined. You're forgiven. You're loved. You're sealed. You're adopted into God's family. You're called on God's mission. All of this is true. If you've placed your faith in Christ, it's true of you. It's you. But here's the thing. When you feel like you can't keep your head above water, when you're in a state of constantly getting triggered, anxious, angry, depressed, outraged, whatever, it is really, really hard to experience this truth. You might technically know, like you know the right answers, but that that 18 inches from head to heart feels like an impossible journey. I don't know about you, but when I'm in the midst of that, when I feel like I can't get my head above water, which is more often than I'd care to admit, I don't want someone to throw a theology book at me. I want someone to toss me a rope and pull me out of it. And and that's that's what Ephesians chapter 3 is. It is a rope to pull you out of the maelstrom. That's what it is. The the question for today that we're going to address in this text is this. How do we experience the life of Jesus, the life that Jesus has promised when we are gripped by this limbic maelstrom, by, by we don't feel like we can keep our heads out of the water? Like, how do we experience the grace of God, like this life-transforming grace that we're promised when we feel like we are just struggling to survive? Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 1, begins like this. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, boom, and he stops. 
I'm not just stopping. The Apostle Paul actually stops here. In fact, if you skip down to verse 14, you'll see he uses the same phrase again. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. It's like Paul is getting ready to pray in chapter 3, verse 1. He's getting ready to pray. I'm all ready to pray for this reason, and I'm getting ready to pray. But then something about it, um, something in him gets caught in his throat. Something he realizes about how the, the Ephesians might receive this, something he realizes about what's going on right now stops him from doing that. And what follows in verses 2 through 13 is a digression. It's a, hey, before we get to the prayer, we need to talk about something right here. Something's going on in you that is leading you to, um, to be disheartened. It could be translated anxious overwhelmed. Something has you gripped in this state of anxiety and fear and outrage right now. And we need to talk about that so we can pray. You see, um, this digression has everything to do with what we talked about last week. For this reason, he sends, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, for this reason, he's referring back to what we talked about last week. So last week we talked about the Jew-Gentile divisions that were tearing the churches apart. And we talked about there's this literal dividing wall in the temple that said Gentiles can go this far, no further. If they cross this line, they will have only themselves to blame for their subsequent death. (laughs) And then we talked about there's this ongoing hostility and outrage between Jew and Gentile in the churches. And there's this fear and anxiety and discouragement over the fact that the apostle Paul is in prison. All of this is wound up. And last week we hinted at the fact all these things I just listed aren't really a bunch of things. They're, they're one thing. It's all interconnected. Because uh, in Acts 21, Paul shows up in Jerusalem and he's like, hey, this is my friend Trophimus the Ephesian. And he's like showing him around town. Come see all this stuff. And they go to the temple and some of the Jews think that Paul brings Trophimus, a Gentile, into past that wall, past that dividing wall. He didn't. But they accuse him of that. And then that's what precipitates everything that follows. They, they, they say, now Paul has to die. He must die because he did this. And this is what ends Paul in prison. This is why Paul has spent the last three years of his life in prison. The Ephesians, they know all about this. They've, they've heard the firsthand accounts from Trophimus himself, this, this story about the wall, the hostility, these falsely accusing Jewish leaders. The fact that Paul is now chained to a Roman guard And all of this has become just like this big, anxiety-laden, fearful, outrageous, maddening, sickening, frustrating, stressful mess for them. And if anyone, anyone has a right to feel like they're overwhelmed or they can't keep their head above water, it would be the Apostle Paul. Um, If anyone has a reason to be triggered, it is Paul. You might recall that in this book of Acts, we know that he's beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, calls riots, shouted at by demon-possessed people, huh? and recently bitten by a poisonous snake. If anyone has reasons to feel like they're under attack, it's Paul, because you know what? The Jewish leaders are literally plotting to have him assassinated right now. That's happening. If anyone has a reason to be anxious, it would be Paul. When he writes the letter to the Philippians from this same prison, he says, I'm not sure whether I'm going to live or die. The, the Romans, they might execute me over this. Paul knows this. And he knows that the Ephesians feel this. He knows that they're being overwhelmed by this. And so Paul pumps the brakes 
And he says, let's reframe this whole thing. We, we need to talk about what we're, what's happening right here. We need to reframe all the stuff that's happening. I am not a prisoner of my Jewish opponents. I'm not a prisoner of their opinion of me. I'm not a prisoner of Caesar. I'm not a prisoner of fear or political power or hatred. Those things do not hold me. I'm, I'm the prisoner of Christ Jesus for your sake. If anyone has the right to feel like they might be caught in a maelstrom of like hate and anxiety and fear and outrage, it would be the Apostle Paul. But he's not. He's not imprisoned by that. So the question comes in like, how, Paul? How do you, how do you sit in prison, have all this stuff happen to you and not get caught up in that? How are you not being sucked under by that? And the answer has something to do with verse two. He says this. Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. So this language, the administration of God's grace to you, this is the exact same language Paul uses in Galatians to talk about the day he met Jesus. He said, surely, surely you've, you've heard. You know my story, right? I was a murderer. I was the Jew who was hunting Christians. I had overseen the stoning of Stephen. I was headed to Damascus. I'm on the road to go hunt down Christians. And there Jesus stops me, his enemy. I hated him. He kicks me off my horse. And then he does the unthinkable. He loved me. He forgave me. But he didn't just forgive me. He made me his representative and his missionary. He sent me people who I hated, the Gentiles, so that I could let them be wrecked by the love of God the same way I was wrecked. That's my mission. That's what's happened in me. That's what's happening right here. That's the administration of God's grace in my life. God's grace smashed into my life, totally knocked me off my horse, changed my direction, changed everything in me. And the people that I once hated, I now love and everything changed. Surely you've heard that story. And reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insights into the mystery of Christ. Now you'll begin to understand what's going on in me, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy prophets and apostles. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, you might recall, we discussed mystery religions. Super popular across like the Greco-Roman world that had to do with like you get um, initiated into this sect, and then once you're initiated, you are invited in to get drunk and go through some ritual, usually sexual in nature, and have your mind open to the mysteries of the universe. That, that's the idea. Paul takes this exact same word and says, um, the mysteries of the universe, they're not revealed like that. They're revealed in a person. So all your questions like, who is God? Does my life have meaning? Is death the end? How do I make sense of suffering? Can I find peace? Who am I? Like those, he says, the, the answer to all of your deepest questions, to life itself, the mysteries of the universe, they were revealed not in some weirdo sect, not in some religious expression. They're revealed in a person. His name's Jesus. And the Apostle Paul, he describes this moment in his life in, in the book of Philippians, also written from prison, as we've already said. Philippians chapter 3, he describes how when Jesus, when he met Jesus on the road, 
the grace of God smashed into his life and it inverted all of his values. The things that he once treasured and valued, all the things that he thought made sense, the way he viewed himself and other people, the way he valued everything in his life, the way he valued his possessions and his religion and the way he valued or did not value other people. God smashed into his life with the grace of God and that inverted everything. Suddenly the things that he once held so dear, he now considered loss for the sake of Christ. He considered them scubula, trash. Um, the word is what you throw away or flush down the toilet. And then suddenly he started to value these things that he had never valued before. These people that he thought were his enemies, these people he despised and hated, suddenly he valued them because of Christ. It completely inverted everything. This mystery that he's talking about here is that through the gospel, the Gentiles, these people who were hated and far from God, are heirs together with Israel, members together in one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus that our divisions, the way we view other people, the thing that is, is at the root of so much of our fear and anxiety and outrage. He says, well, I, I see all that very, very differently now. And words can't quite crap, capture what Paul's saying here, so he makes up a word. He does this a few different times in the text. He takes the, the Greek word sous, which means with, and soma, body, and he smashes them together. Susoma! And that's what, when it says one body, it's in Greek. It's, he's made this into one word. It's a one body. We're one body. We're with one body. It's, it's, it's the idea of like conjoined twins attached to the hip. Suddenly these people who, who we were, I was enemies with, who I hated, who I did, spent all my time distancing myself from, now we are attached to the hip. We are conjoined twins. We, that's what Jesus did to us. The people I once viewed as my enemies, the, the Jews who are trying to assassinate him right now, the Roman he's chained to, the immoral Gentiles. I don't see them as enemies anymore. I see them as people just like me who desperately need to experience the grace of God. And when they do, we can be brothers and sisters. We can be in one family. Jesus wants to do to them what he did to me. They are not the enemy. They're held captive by the enemy. So a few years ago, I uh, got to go to the Philippines, visit some GVF missionaries there at a seminary. And while I was there, uh, we were walking one night and checking out this the seminary like campus and get to see you see people from all these different languages and people groups there and it attracts students from middle east all across asia it's it's quite diverse one of the things i didn't really think about until i got there is like how awkward that could be because some of these people groups hate each other I mean, hate each other. They had quite a bit of their student population was from Pakistan, and quite a bit was from northern India. And you may or may not realize this, but um, they have a history of seething hostility between the two. And it goes well beyond, like, the, the cricket pitch there, right? Like, the violence, a history of violence between these two people groups. And um, the missionaries, as we were walking, told me a story. He said one night... Um, one night there were out some children out playing and construction workers had accidentally left a manhole cover off in the road. And a young Indian mom came out, called for her children to dinner. And a couple of them came, but her little girl wasn't there. And she looked around, saw the hole, and immediately knew what happened. and started shrieking. It's 
said a man from Pakistan who lived next door came out and immediately, without thinking, dove into the hole to get the little girl. Mortal enemies, but no more, not in Christ. And that's the image. That's the gospel. That's what Paul's talking about here. Like, we might have been enemies before, but not in Christ. Once you experience that this is what Christ did for me, he came after me, he dove into the hole for me, then you will realize you can dive into the hole for your enemy. How do you ruin your enemy? How do you destroy them? You destroy them by making them family. That's how you get rid of your enemies. You love them. It's a radically different way of viewing those who hate you. I became a servant of this gospel. They're like, this is my work. This is what I do. I go tell my enemies about the love of God. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. This is my mission. This is my gospel. This is what I do. I go tell people who hate me, you might hate me right now, but God loves you. And this, this changes the way I view them, these people who are attacking me. It changes how I view myself. Verse 8, although I am less than the least of the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this ministry, this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. He refers to himself as less than the least of all the Lord's people. Let me clarify here. This is not covert narcissism disguised as altruism, to quote Taylor Swift. This is not self-loathing. This is not even self-focus. What Paul is describing here is what psychologists refer to as the small self. Have you ever heard this language before? He, he's overwhelmed by the boundless riches of, of Christ the bigness of what God is doing. And when he sees what God is doing, it puts his life in perspective and he feels so small, so little, so unworthy, so humbled. It's, um, it's when you stand before the ocean. It's when you go up to the top of a mountain and look out. It's when you look up at 200-foot eucalyptus trees. It's, it's when your family's sitting around the table and just for a moment, Everyone's getting along, and the food is good, and you're laughing, and you really, there's just deep love there, and you feel a deep, deep sense of gratitude. Something about those moments makes you feel so small and so alive. You lose a sense of yourself. The things that separate you and me, the things that separate you and God, they fall away. Like you realize that your life is bound up with God and with others, with one body. We're, we're attached, we're joined, we're together in this. You're united with God and with one another. And you're caught up in something bigger than yourself, bigger than your life, bigger than your problems, your stresses, your fears, your anxieties, bigger than all that. And when Paul, who's sitting in prison and has every reason to feel like he's struggling with all of this, when he steps back and looks at what God is doing, his problems, they feel so very small. He feels so very small. His situation, his suffering his, is, is given meaning. It's actually given beauty. That's the language. He's filled with a sense of awe. Verse 10, his intent was that now... 
through the church, through us, through what he's doing in us, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purposes that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, Paul here, is, he's running out of real words, so he's making ones up. That word manifold in Greek is not a real word. He takes the word uh, for much or muchness, polus, and he, he mashes it with the word for multicolored, as in, you know this word in the Old Testament, as in Joseph had a technicolor dream coat, that multicolored coat, same word here, it's uh, poikilos. So he takes polos and poikilos, and it's polopoikilos, polopoikilos, he just made up a word here. He says, the church, when I look at it, it is, here, here, the sense of diversity here, all these beautiful, beautiful strands and colors that you can't even imagine coming together. When he steps back and looks at the diversity of all the people, of all the ways God's working, he says, it's polo por kilos. It's beyond what the eye can see. Like you have to see it with eyes of faith. So do you know, uh, do you know who this guy is? You know what that is? That is a peacock mantis shrimp. Huh? So human eyes, what they're famous for is their eyes. So human eyes, we can see three color channels, right? We got the, we got the reds, we got the, the green, and we got the blue. And then everything else is like a mixture of those three, like a printer with three colors on it. These guys, they have 12 color channels. They can see everything from UV to infrared to polarized light. I don't even know what that means. Which is to say, we have really no idea what the world looks like through their eyes. They see colors that you and I cannot imagine. Polo por kilos. And Paul says, when you, when you step back and by eyes of faith begin to take in what God is doing, when you look at yourself, when you look at the people sitting next to you, do you see it? Even if you can't see it in yourself, can you see it in others? God's workmanship. He is doing something more beautiful than you can possibly imagine, more beautiful than you can begin to take in right now. But if we can't see it, Paul makes clear, someone can see it. The rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, they can see all of this perfectly clear. I want you to pay attention to that. You guys know the story of Job? You know, he loses everything. Why did he lose everything? Was it his fault? No, no. Was he really bad? Was it stupid? Was it dumb luck? No, there was something going on that Job had no idea about. Uh, it, it was that God allowed Satan to take away all that he had so that the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms could see that Job was a man who truly loved God for God, not for what God gave him. He loved God for God, not for what God gave him. So you can take away everything else. Just don't take away God because my life is founded on God. He's the one I love. He's the one I want. And Paul says, that's what's happening with us. Whether you know it or not, we are on display. What's happening in our church? He says, the reason I'm in prison right now, the suffering, the division, all the, are the hardships we're facing. It's not really about me or you. God is displaying his manifold wisdom through us. That your struggles, your life, you are part of something so much bigger than yourself. What's happening in your life right now is part of, and he says, 
his eternal purposes. His eternal purposes. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Literally, it translates freedom and confidence. Literally translates these two words, freedom and access. Freedom and access. Um, But when Paul says this, he's not referring to two things in particular. He's not saying we now have freedom to go to God and we have access to go to God, although that's true. This is a hendiades. Do you know that term, hendiades? It literally means one by means of two. So if you say this room is um, nice and comfortable or nice and warm, if we say this room is nice and warm, you're not referring to the niceness of the room and the warmth of the room. You're referring to the, the temperature of this room. This room might be terrible. It's kind of, maybe it's nice. But it's nice and warm. We're referring to warmth. It's, it's two, one by means of two. Hendiades in English are rather rare, but they're common, exceedingly common in the scriptures. And when you take freedom and access and you put them together, it's not just freedom, it's not just access, but it means, and I quote the Greek scholar Clinton Arnold, frankness of speech in the context of friendship. So if you're between the ages of like, say, uh, five years old and 85 years old, you have to filter your words. Now, if you're below that age, below school age, or over 85, all bets are off. But for the rest of your life, in between that range, you have to keep it in balance. You have to think about what you say. If you are a normal, healthy, like generally socially acclimated person, you have to guard your speech about like 97% of the time. You have to. And that's okay. That's, that's actually good. That's a good thing. If you read James 3, um, there's really no question about incendiary speech. You shouldn't go there. But hopefully, and I'm hoping, you have at least one person in your life, at least one, a friend, a mentor, a coach, a a counselor, someone who you can go to, and you can tell them what you're really thinking and feeling. You can just take off the filter. You don't have to pretty it up. You don't have to make sure it's all right. It doesn't even have to make sense. You can just say it. You know that they're for you. They're not going to hold it against you. If you say something wrong, if you reveal how stupid and judgmental you actually are, if you only speak in like a string of cuss words for 10 minutes, they're not going to hold it against you. They're for you. They're going to help you navigate it. They're going to help you get through that. You have freedom and access with that person. You can just vomit up what you're thinking, unfiltered, raw, sinful, whatever, and you trust them to handle it. They're not going to turn it against you. They're going to help you navigate it through it. And, and Paul says, this is what we have with Jesus. I don't know about you. Most of us were taught, um, never taught to pray like that. We were taught to pray formally, solemnly, dear God, some type of ritual. When we pray, usually our prayers have to do, like we get together to pray, we're going to pray, and dear God, please help Aunt Betty's bunions. <laughs> I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. We should pray for that. But, but we've never learned to pray these raw, unfiltered prayers. But thankfully, we have a guide for this. Um, the book of the Psalms is uh, the prayer book of God's people. Uh, these are the prayers that Moses and David and Paul and Jesus prayed. So if you faithfully just pray these prayers, this prayer book of God, you will learn how to pray the most obscene, most shameful, completely unfiltered thoughts and feelings to God. You have some examples. Examples, yeah. So how do you pray when you feel like God isn't listening? Psalm 13. 
How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Look at me. Answer me. Amen. (laughs) Psalm 137. How do you pray when you hate someone? Some of you need to mark this one down. Oh, daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you've done. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Psalm 109, how do you pray when you feel like you're being attacked by someone? Appoint an evil man to oppose him. Let an accuser stand at his right side. When he's tried, let him be found guilty. May his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. May his children be fatherless. May his children be wandering beggars. May a creditor seize all he, all he has. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. And may the sin of his mother never be blotted out. He just cursed the man's mom. <sighs> In a prayer. Psalm 88. How do you pray when you're depressed? You've put me in the lowest pit. Your wrath lies heavy on me. You've overwhelmed me with your waves. Darkness is my closest friend. Darkness. And that, that's just a taste. It's the longest book in our Bible for a reason, friends. Do you hear this? Do you hear how radical this is? Paul says we have freedom and access to God. He invites us into this. He says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy uh, burdened. I will give you rest. Unload on me. You, you, I will bear your burdens for you. He invites us to let him into our suffering, into our anxiety, into our hatred, into our confusion and doubts and fears, into the maelstrom that we're feeling. We don't need to hide. He wants to meet us there. He enters into it with us. He is God with us. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged. Don't don't be overwhelmed. Don't, Don't be anxious. Don't be stressed out over this because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. So... Trophimus told you what's going on. You you know how I was arrested and how the Jews are plotting to assassinate me. You know about how I'm getting bitten by snakes and shipwrecked and demon-possessed people are yelling at me. And you know how I've spent the last three years in prison and how churches are dividing over this Jew-Gentile thing. And that all might be true, but this isn't how I see it. God is doing something awesome in us something glorious, which reminds Paul, let's pray. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, that he would come into you so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Like, you know, you know Ephesians 1 and 2 now. You know all that truth. You know that the Spirit's already in you. You know that God loves you. You know all that intellectually. But I pray that you would experience it, that you'd be renewed day by day, that you'd take that into your inner being, that it wouldn't just be head knowledge, but it'd be the very beating of your heart, that that is what would found your whole life. I pray that that would suck you in and break you out of the maelstrom that you're in right now. I pray that it would shake you out of your anxiety, your depression, 
your outrage, the way you feel so triggered by other people. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, that it's your very source, the very foundation of your life is the love of God for you, that being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know the love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So Paul leaves us here with one final image hidden in these words, grasp and power. The word translated grasp here literally means to conquer or capture or lay siege. So Joshua chapter eight, Joshua and and the Israelite army empowered by God, go and take the city of Ai by storm and they violently capture it. They grasp it. Power, Paul speaks of this. Um, The the word that power, Paul used, translated power here is not the same word he's been using throughout the text. This is a, the technical term is a hapax legomena. It's a one of a kind. This only occurs here in the whole Bible. And again, Paul is is mashing up words here to to say what he means. It could be translated like super powered or turbocharged, but that sounds all wrong. It's the wrong idea. It's, it's the image of uh, Samson. You know the guy? Uh, the lustful, sinful, broken guy. The guy who you have no idea why God would use him. But God does. God chooses him. And when the power of God comes on Samson, he can destroy an entire army. He can rip the city gates off and carry it up the hill and drop it. In the same way that God gave the promised lands to the Israelites, but they needed the power of God to then drive out the Canaanites so they could take possession and enjoy the land that was already theirs. It was promised by God, but they needed the power of God to take possession of it. God has already given us this great inheritance. Ephesians 1 and 2. This life with him that is full of love, joy, peace, patience, rest, justice, reconciliation, purpose, grace. It's for us. It's promised us. It is our inheritance as adopted sons and daughters of the king. But we need the power of God to take possession. To even begin to get in. To to even begin to enter in. To fully live into it. To begin to measure it. To survey it. To grasp how wide and long and high and deep it is. Do you hear the crucial difference here? It's the difference between, um, Paul's Paul's echoing an an Old Testament story here. It's the difference between spying it out and saying, that land over there is fantastic. It's full of milk and honey. It is this amazing land. We Yes, that's the promised land. That's what God promised, but we can't go in there. There's giants in there. And it's... um, spying it out and saying, God promised it to us. And yes, there are giants in there. But God promised it for me, for my family, for my community. And if he is with us, we can take it. So how do we take possession of these promises, of this life he's promised us? How do we experience the grace of God when we feel like we can't keep our heads above water? If, um, if, if, if you were to come to me and say, Paul, I don't know, I'm, having, I'm struggling with all this. I'm caught in this limbic maelstrom that you keep talking about. I'm stuck in there, but I don't believe all this Jesus or Bible stuff. You know what I'd tell you? I'd say, well, the psychologist Jonathan Haidt, he says um, what you need to do is every day go on a 15-minute walk 
And you, during that 15-minute walk, you need to look around, look up, and you need to think of something bigger than yourself. It creates a sense of awe, which then creates a sense of the small self, which then puts everything else in perspective, and suddenly it regulates your emotions. It breaks you out of that limbic state. That's what a psychologist would say. Uh, the Apostle Paul says something shockingly similar, but shockingly different. He says, uh, you're missing the whole point of that. That peace does not come from a psychological practice. It comes from a person. His name is Jesus. You need to pray. Like That might give you a little taste of something. That might be some trick of the mind. But if you want real peace, it comes to a person named Jesus. It is prayer that reframes and reformats your mind. It is by praying. It's by his presence, recognizing his presence in your life, that we are transformed. And, and these three things pop out of the text. The first one is just like Jonathan Haidt said. We need to sit in awe of God. We need to take in the multicolored amazingness of what God is doing. We need to step back and realize his goodness for us, his grace for us, his amazing work that he's doing. We need to realize that, that it's not just about us, that our sufferings, our hardship, something bigger is going on than that. Something bigger is at stake. We're part of something so much huger. Huger? Ah. Ginormous. Let's make up words with the Apostle Paul. He's doing something beautiful. He's showing the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms the glory of his wisdom through you, through your suffering, through how you respond to your enemies, through how you respond to hardships. The second is prayers that are unfiltered. Being able to unload your burdens on him the way you would to a most trusted friend. And the third has something to do with surveying God's promises that in prayer, we come before God and we take possession of this so that we can grasp how wide, we grasp, we take possession of how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Um, I want to leave these three things with you, sitting in awe of God, praying unfiltered prayers, and surveying, measuring God's love, his grace, his power in your life. These are three key steps that I'd like to encourage you as, as we head into the month of December. The elders have called us as a church that for the month of December, we want to develop a practice of similar to what Jonathan Haidt would recommend, pausing every day midday. But it's not based on psychological practices. It's based on the book of Daniel. Every day he stopped in the middle of the day to pray. I think we could use that. I think we need that. So I, I just want to encourage you, starting December 1st, there'll be an email coming out about this with details. We're going to encourage everyone in our church to stop at 1230. If that time doesn't work for you, pick a time that does. But we'd, we love the idea of everyone in our church stopping, pausing to pray, one of these three things, to sitting in awe of God, to just unleash your unfiltered prayers, probably not around your children, or stopping to just survey God's promises for you, how deep and wide and high and long is the prayer of God. This doesn't have to be long. The key is just to break us out of our limbic state so we can remember whose we are, who we serve, what we're part of. If you need a guide for that, I would encourage you to use this text right here, specifically verses 17b and 18. 
This is the prayer. Lord, may I have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. May I take possession of that. May that be where I live today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.